0: What we really believe in as a program is having fewer rules and more standards, right? So these are the things that we believe in, even as a team, we talk about it. You know, as a coach, I might have a couple of non-negotiable standards, but also the team speak into every, what are our, what are our standards? You know, what do we expect out of each other? And so one thing that we have done in practice is we actually do have a, you know, a simple science, actually just black and white and laminated. It's the first thing you see when you walk out of our locker room before you go on court. And it says, um, what do you choose today? And underneath it, there's just a horizontal line. And that's our reminder, like are we to choose to live above the line um, or live below the line. And so what we talk about early in the season is the moment you walk out of that hallway and onto the court, like that is your, your physical demonstration of deciding to live above the line that day. And above the line just means <laughs> I'm not the most important, right? The team is more important. The other things going on are more important, but, but I'm here to be a part of the team and make it the best I can be.
1: Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Matt McLeod to the Coaches Club Podcast. Matt has been a head high school basketball coach in Texas and Oklahoma for over 10 years, where he has amassed over 300 total wins and seen countless players receive all-district and all-state honors. He was also recognized three times as the Texas Outstanding Coach of the Year by the Texas Association of Basketball Coaches. Matt has also spent the last five years directing PGC basketball camps all over the United States. During that time, he's worked with thousands of athletes and coaches to improve their basketball skills and leadership. I've had the pleasure of working two different PGC sessions with Matt as the director, and I can attest to the quality of person, leader, and coach he is. He shares some really great insights in this episode on how to thrive with parents, how to be a culture keeper, the three C's of coach education, and why he believes in having more standards and less rules. I've also got some really exciting news to share with you guys. I had the opportunity to write the study guide for Doug Lamov's book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. Doug was my guest in episode one of the podcast, and we talked about his fantastic book. We just released the free study guide together, and you can go download a copy of the PDF at cgtbookclubs.com. That's cgtbookclubs.com to get the free study guide that includes discussion questions on each chapter of the book. And as Doug and I were working on the study guide, we kept coming back to how powerful it would be for like-minded coaches to be able to use the study guide as they go through the book together. So in addition to the study guide, I'm launching free virtual book clubs that are four weeks long and they cover one chapter from the coach's guide to teaching at a time. I'll be leading the book clubs and Doug will be making guest appearances for q and A slash film session. I opened up the first two book clubs on Thursday, July 1st with 30 spots for each, one for US coaches and one for UK. And within 30 hours, both had sold out. If you wanna be the first to know about the future book clubs, send me an email at luke at transformsport.org and I'll make sure to notify you when I'm opening up additional book clubs. In the meantime, you can go download the free study guide for the Coach's Guide to Teaching at cgtbookclubs.com. And as always, if you'd like to get a free PDF of the notes from this podcast episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes or click the link in the show details to get your copy. And finally, on July 18th, I'm kicking off the first Coach's Club cohort It's an eight-week online cohort course and community that helps coaches grow as effective teachers and transformational leaders surrounded by other like-minded coaches. I only have a few spots left, so if you're interested, you can go to transformsport.org slash coaches club, or just send me an email with questions at luke at transformsport.org. And if you'd like to reserve your spot in the cohort, go to transformsport.org slash free call or click the link in the show details to schedule a call to talk with me and claim your spot. Now to my conversation with my good friend, Matt McLeod. Enjoy the episode. Why do you coach? What, what got you into it? What's kept you into it?
0: It's a really good question. I think I'm like so many other coaches, and like, my answer is not unique at all, but I'm coaching to make the impact that so many coaches and others made in my own life. And you know, like, again, like I said, I, I did not go to college with the intention to be a coach. It was not on my list of things to do. Um, but after I spent a, a couple of years, I did work in, like I said, Division One Athletics. But I also worked in the corporate world a little bit and just felt like a, a purpose for me was missing um, and coming home at the end of the day and, and realizing that there was more to what I wanted to do with my life. And so, yeah, as my wife and I were talking about it I just decided, hey, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's see maybe if this is it. And after like a month in, I was sold. I was done. This is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
1: That's awesome. I love that. Uh, and this kind of segues into the next question. Um, what is it that you enjoy the most about it? I mean, what is it that it was like, oh, this is it?
0: Yeah, that's a tough question. Because <laughs> I think there's so many like intangible pieces that I love about coaching and also some really tangible ones. You know, even on the tangible side, just like the, the ebbs and flows of a season. You know, like right now we're in preseason mode. And so we're talking about what offense we're going to run, what defense we're going to run, how we can develop skills. And then you get into the season and you're trying to figure out what adjustments you have to make. You know, I heard Roy Williams say one time that, you know, if you're following the same game plan, eight minutes into a basketball game, um, either you've made the best game plan ever, or you need to learn to make adjustments (laughs) because those two things, you know, it's no game goes how you think it's going to go. And so I just love the strategy, the analytics, all those things speak to me, but I know even more importantly for me, I'm so passionate about just helping young men and women like I coach boys basketball right now, but just helping young people begin to find their passions and learn the value of hard work. You know, I, I believe if you, if you put in the time to be a great high school basketball player, you can put in the time to be great at nearly anything in life. And so just kind of being able to help set those foundations. Um, Cause I know I needed so much help <laughs> when I was a 17, 18, even 19 year old uh, guy. I uh, just didn't know what I wanted out of life or how to get there. And so trying to help pay that forward, like so many did for me.
1: That's awesome. Uh, On the other side of that question, uh, in your experience coaching in the last 15 years, what's been the most frustrating thing about coaching?
0: Uh, You know, I think my answer might be a little different than some others on this one. Uh, For me, the frustration of coaching are all the distractions. Um, I just think right now that our our lives are busier than they've ever been before. Right? I just think to my own life, I graduated from high school in 1999, so a little more than 20 years ago. And I'm not talking about academics. I'm not talking about school, like school life and sports. But there's just so many other distractions right now. And so um, we are constantly fighting for our athletes' attention, right? For their emotional attention, for their mental attention, for their physical attention. And so that can be very frustrating at times. Um, I think early in my coaching career, I would have said parents, like a lot of coaches would have. Um, But I was fortunate to have mentors in my life that helped me learn how to, you know, coexist is, is even not a, doesn't have that same weight of where it's how to thrive with parents. And so I love the parents in our program. I love the things we go through. You know, I think great teams like great families are not perfect all the time. They have good days and bad days. Um, but for me as a coach, the most frustrating thing is just the distractions and the uh, what we're trying to fight with to get the attention of our players.
1: Mm-hmm. That's good. And this wasn't on my question list, but I, I want to, I mean, it's such an important one. Like you said, it's what most people would go to is the mm-hmm. most frustrating thing is the parents but what, what was it that you got from those mentors that you learned early on that's allowed you to thrive in relationship with parents as a coach? Like, what are, what are a couple practical things that you've learned or have been able to do?
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's a great question. Uh, actually, a mentor of mine one time just really helped open my eyes to the fact that it's not me as the coach versus the parents. I think a lot of times when there's, you know, that little bit of rub and attention, whether it's playing time or number of shots or whatever it is that maybe a parent gets frustrated about um, with, their, with their child and, and wanting to gain understanding of the situation, the parent walks in adversarial and the coach comes in adversarial. So we're already both losing um, because we're missing the bigger point that we're on the same page, which is what we want, what is best for the athlete. And just understanding that even though we're sitting on the same side of the table, right, we both want what's best for the athlete just sometimes our viewpoint is different. I mean, as a coach, I'm adding the viewpoint of every player in my program, whereas parents, and hey, I'm a parent too, so I'm understanding this more and more. So many times a parent perspective is just that of their child and not the bigger picture. And so the two things through that, the two things I've really learned have been super helpful is number one, anytime I go into a parent meeting, we just state the obvious. We state the fact that we're both on the same side, both wanting what's best for the individual athlete, but that our viewpoints might be different. Um, And so I think a lot of times just getting that out in front with parents is so helpful. Um, It sets expectations for the conversation. And the second thing I found that been really helpful for me is I'm not attached to the outcome of an individual meeting, whether it's with a parent, whether it's with a player about playing time, you know, even maybe a a school administrator or an assistant coach. You have to go in and and do your best and treat people with respect, you know, and listen to them and, and hear what they have to say. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not that we're always going to be aligned and on 100% the same page when we leave the meeting.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Just to follow up on that a little more, like, how how have you handled the meetings with a player that's frustrated about playing time or the parent that's frustrated about whatever, and it doesn't go well? Like, how do you, how do you go forward from that not mm. being attached to the outcome? I can tell
0: you, I've done a lot of wrong ways for sure and had to learn from those. And so I think it's sometimes, you know, as a coach, when you're on the sideline and all of a sudden you like stumble onto this action that works really well, you stumble onto some kind of defensive alignment. I think it's been the same thing for me with dealing with those tough conversations with athletes and parents. I've just stumbled on with trial and error onto some things that really work. Um, you know, one thing actually, I just stole this from another coach at the end of last season. Um, There's a coach in in Blaine, Washington, that's had a super successful program. And one of the things that he's done to really build a great culture, because I mean, they're successful on the court and off the court, they're winning state championships, but they're also developing incredible human beings. And one thing that he does at the beginning of every season is he tells the parents what he promises them and also what he doesn't promise them. So it'd be things like promises to love their son, to treat their son with respect, to encourage their son, to hold their son accountable. The things that he doesn't promise are things like playing time or, you know, input. He <laughs> doesn't promise to receive input on systems and strategies. And it's just, it's, it's a loving letter. Um, and, you know, the first year I'm sure a little awkward, as it was for me last year, sharing that with the families of my program. And so it caught some people off guard. But as it becomes a part of your culture, right? Luke, and you know this, just anytime the more consistent you are in doing it, when it goes from new or awkward or unexpected to being the norm, um, then it's much more received as part of the culture. So that's one thing that I know I will do for the rest of my coaching career is just have a very a loving but upfront open conversation on the things we can expect um, and guarantee or not expect and not guarantee in this coach-parent-player relationship.
1: That's really good. Are Were players and parents in that meeting, or is that just you to the parents, the I promise this and I don't promise this?
0: That's really good. Um, it, it happened very last minute towards the end of our season last year. So, for last year, we had a pay, uh, p- player coach meeting. Because um, it was almost like uh, for old people like me, the movie Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you ever watched that, but we're at the beginning of the movie where Tom Cruise he stays up all night, like writing this manifesto of what he believes about being a sports agent. Like, I always kind of joked and laughed about that scene, but then I experienced it myself as I was going through it. So, it was like basically an all nighter staying up, letting my passion out on paper so we just had a team meeting the next day and went over it. But then uh, last year, I, I, I emailed it out to all my parents, and I did ask them to either respond that they got it or sign, um, sign a copy of it and send it back. Um, beginning this season, it'll just be a part of our, our parent meeting. You know, we have an introductory parent meeting at the beginning of the season, and then um, maybe not scheduled meetings, but I make sure to connect with parents all year. Um, but just in that first meeting, we'll use that to help set the standard for what's going on.
1: That's awesome. That's, that's really, really good. I, uh, yeah, I may be stealing that too. That's awesome. All right. Kind of shifting a little bit next section, just thinking and talking about youth sports and, and we can think when we say youth sports. I mean, we can high school and below, um, I know it's a little bit different as you get into high school, but the first question is just how would you in your experience describe the current culture of youth sports in our country?
0: Yeah. If we're going one word, I'm going intense. You know, our youth sports culture is intense. And I think that it's good and bad. Um, I think there, you know, we definitely have people are on one side of the conversation on the other. Um, just as far as life goes, I think it's really important to assume that people are doing the best they can with what they know. And so even maybe where there's some areas of our youth sports culture that maybe I don't align with or don't think it's best. Um, you know, the other person on the other side is still just doing the best they can with what they know about the situation. But now after 15 years of experiencing, coaching high school athletes that went through our youth sports system, I've learned that players are really burnt out when they get to high school. And that many players, you know, have been, had chose one sport early on. And, you know, since the time they were seven or eight years old, have been playing one sport, you know, 360 of 365 days a year. And so then they get to high school and their love for the game, their passion for it, it's become way more of a job than it has anything else. And so, I mean, I think that's one thing for me that I would love to see, hey, how can we adjust and change so that at 16 or 17 years old, we're not burned out and we're not hating the sports that we should love and find enjoyment for the rest of our life. And so do do I think that means eliminating youth sports? No, absolutely not. But I think, Luke, it's about what you're doing right now. It's about educating. Right. Like is when ESPN came out with this study recently of the, the effects that so many AAU basketball games were having over the course of, you know, from eight to 16 or 17 on the bodies of potential NBA picks and how it's different now than it was 20 years ago. Now, I don't think we can refute the science and that the bodies are being worn down. But I also think mentally um, there's a piece there. And hopefully through research like what you're doing, we can do a better job of informing so that we can just better prepare our, our kids when they're in youth sports for when they get older.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And please share that article with me because I haven't read it, but it sounds fascinating and I want to. And so, that, I mean, that kind of segues into the next two questions and maybe it's what you just said. Maybe maybe you have something else to add to it, but the next two questions were just, what do you think is the biggest problem in youth sports? And then what do you think is the solution? I you kind of started to hit on those, but yeah. is there anything you would add to it? Yeah, for sure. And
0: I think maybe biggest, you know, might be a tough question to answer. Um, I think a little bit about perception and maybe even area of the country. You know, living in Oklahoma and Texas, I see one side or one version. But my brother who lives in New York, right, might see it very differently. And so I think, you know, but just where we are and even like owning our backyard and helping make sports a great place. I I think when a child is just learning how to play, right, like they should love the game. They should do two things like learn to love the game and learn the fundamentals of the game. And I just think it's unfortunate that, and I hate, shoot, I've been as guilty of it, right? I, I coached my boys' seven-year-old flag football team at the YMCA last year, right? So I, I've been in the trenches, too. And in that moment when the game is going on, you want to win. And there are moments where it's only about winning. Um, but I think that we're setting a really bad precedent for, um, you know, the following generations if we're teaching them within sport that it's always about the win and the loss. And now, listen, I love winning as much as anybody i hate maybe i hate to lose more i'm not sure where i fall on that coin right but if it's only about winning then there's losing every day and at the end of the season really only one team per classification successful and that's the team that wins a state championship and so i think that what we can really do is a solution is to help do a better job of defining winning or defining success at the younger levels of sport um, I'm not advocating for not keeping score. I think you need to know where you stand, you know? I mean, I think that's important and that's healthy. Um, but if it's just about the win and the loss, it loses its enjoyment really fast. And so I know that, uh, you know, I heard someone say one time, it's, it's not a job, there's not work if you enjoy what you do. So what are we doing if these 15, 16 year old boys and girls are, are hating sports? Um, when I was working on my master's program, I actually did a little bit of a dive into what you're looking at. And one of the things I looked at was, why were kids quitting sports at a younger age? And the number one reason was it's not as fun, you know? And again, it's not Pollyanna, it's not all rainbows and unicorns, and it's just about the fun. But if there's no enjoyment, it's hard to be motivated. Um, And so I think, you know, part of the solution is just finding ways to address that. Um, I think part of the education is also helping parents understand that college scholarships are not given out to eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds. Right. And that's tough. And we care about our kids. We want what's best for our kids. I want what's best for my kid. Um, but I think that we have bought into this idea and this concept. And It's not the parents fault. It's what they've been told, but that at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, your rankings and your how many games and how fast and how, how, you know, fast you can run, how hard you can hit, how many points you can score um, when those things don't really matter as much at that age. And so I just think it's a, maybe more of a, of a refocusing of, of who we want to be and what we want to do as a country um, with our youth support system. But I think it really starts at the local level and, and helping us as coaches, um, as parents, people who care about our community, like what can we do locally and then slowly see that change come across.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's really good, There's that's that's so much good stuff. I love what you said about redefining winning and success. I think that is that is so huge And and I even have, dove into some research studies that sports psychologists have done. And part of training that they did with youth coaches was train them on a philosophy of winning and success Mm -hmm. that was separate from the outcome of the game, Mm -hmm. right? That actually allowed them to measure success by something other than just a win and a loss. And they still kept score, right? But like you said, um, it changes the focus and and makes it so much more enjoyable, I think for kids. And the other thing I'll say too is uh, one of the interviews I did, I can't remember who it was, but, he talked about, similarly to what you were saying with educating parents, like scholarships aren't given to eight and nine-year-olds, mm-hmm. but it's like we've created this system and this belief, he called it um, artificial selection, that mm-hmm. we bought into this this notion, it's kind of similar to this notion of the head start, that like if we get our kids mm-hmm. into these funnels of elite travel teams at eight and nine years old, that it's going to lead to them getting this college scholarship that, mm-hmm. I don't even, does we even know if the kid wants that, like Maybe, right. but, or does the parent just want that? Um, and honestly, if you want a college scholarship, like, or to pay for college, maybe just invest for college instead of spending thousands of dollars traveling the country every weekend. Like, so yeah, no, I think I think those things are great points. And like you said, there's not just one problem, there's a lot and, yeah. and they're all kind of connected in, this, in those ways.
0: Well, and let me give you two quick examples um, of personal experiences where I've just kind of seen this play out. Cause I think when we make it, um, more realistic, right? We can actually like attach a, a moment or a situation. And so um, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a coaches convention in Dallas. And so that night in the hotel, hanging out, meeting other coaches, um, one of the coaches there was from Sweden and got the chance to talk with him for a while and told me every year he comes for about a month to the U.S. to go through coaches clinics and just learn more about the game. And so I asked him, I was like, well, tell me, what is the biggest difference you found between, you know, like high school coaches in the U.S., and our counterparts in Sweden, right? They have a little bit of a different system than we do as far as not schools, it's clubs, but like what's similar and different? And Luke was crazy. He started laughing before I even finished my question. And he was like, oh, Matt, when I started doing this 20 years ago, it became very evident. Coaches in the US know their win-loss record. He said, I bet you that of all the coaches in this hotel right now, that nearly everyone could tell me what their all-time win-loss record is the a coach. And he said, I have no idea. I don't know what it is. He said, now in my program, I am being held responsible. Um, he said, but the things that I'm judged the success of my program is how many of our players play in college, how many of our players have a chance to play professional basketball. Um, and now, and this was not, a, you know, because a, a, I, I started prodding because I think it's sometimes it's easy for us to say, hey, it's not all about winning when we don't coach winning teams, right? So then it can sound like a cop out sometimes, right? Just truth. So I started poking a little more <laughs> at, at this coach from Sweden just saying, well, you know, well, how successful have your programs been? You know, how do people view you? And just the more I asked, and he was very hesitant to share, but I mean, he's winning not just local titles, but, you know, national titles in their region and like one of the most successful coaches in Sweden, right? Um, is what I came to learn. But his focus is not about the wins and losses. It's about preparing them for what's next, you know? And so their club is about what's next, is playing in college, playing professionally. Um, but I think that we could do a better job, both as youth coaches and as high school coaches, of preparing each individual athlete for what's next. If it's college basketball, if it's going to, you know, a a college that they don't think they can get into, whatever it is. And if we can kind of shift that focus away from winning and losing, I think that's super helpful. Um, And another quick one that I know people in in Texas and and Arkansas will appreciate too about football was one time I was an athletic director of school my first year there and me and the coach were trying to reset and do some things differently to make it um, more of a program that people want to be a part of and we were walking the halls and there were these two massive young men, like 15, 16 years old, six three, you know, like over 200 pounds, just like, they belong on a football field. If you're a football coach, right? Like you're gonna recruit your hallway for that. And we went up to talk to them to see why they weren't playing football. And what we learned was, then they were in middle school at a different school, they had gotten cut as seventh graders and they were told that they weren't very good. And seventh graders, they were little, they were tiny. Right. They hadn't hit puberty yet. They were late to puberty and hitting it. And so just because they were so demoralized for that process, they didn't want anything to do with it anymore. Right. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes we have to overcome adversity. Yes, I agree 100 percent. But I think in our in our culture um, of, of sports in the U.S., we've just talked so much about making a team or not making a team. Right. Winning games or not winning games. And if we're talking about development, we don't know what 15 and 16 year olds will look like when they're 10 and 11. Um, people develop differently, their body develops differently. And so I think as we begin to look at maybe other alternatives to youth sports, we actually might do a better job of developing, um, our youth for whatever sport they choose to be a part of.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's so good. And I, I mean, i didn't speak specifically to that, like at the high school, I coach out in Arkansas, like the tryout numbers in basketball for ninth grade. So when kids come to the high school, like they, they've continue to drop in the last few years in large part for those reasons is like kids are tired of being cut from mm-hmm. a fifth grade team a sixth grade team a seventh. like it's like all right like why would I why would I keep playing and yeah like not every kid is going to play high school varsity basketball and not every kid's even going to make like your ninth grade team out of high school but it's it's becoming really evident that kids are just walking away because like why would I go out there and try out again if I got cut before I even matured and had a chance to develop yeah I think that's huge next question kind of section just kind of getting into now coaching and and qualities of a great coach what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about something you wish you would have known about coaching when you started
0: (laughs) such a good question Yeah, if I go back to that younger self, um, I think it's just helping him understand that, and this is cheesy, it's corny, I get it, but it rings really true for me. Um, The grass is greener where you water it. I mean, I think that's something I didn't understand when I was a younger coach. Um, I remember as a younger coach, every year, I'm going to get, I was fortunate to never be an assistant coach, right? And actually, I think some, some areas I, we all should be assistant coaches. There are things that I had to learn a um, more difficult way um, that I would have learned if I'd been an assistant coach. But um, as, a, as a young head coach, I remember every year sending my, my resume out to 40, 50, 60 different schools in different states to try to climb this ladder. And, and there's nothing wrong with climbing the ladder. Um, and there's nothing wrong with finding the best fit. Um, but what I know I neglected early in my career was even if I was looking for new opportunities, I was almost checking out on the current one until I knew if I was coming back or not. If that makes sense, like I'd apply and apply and apply. And when I realized, okay, I'm not going to get any these jobs, then I would begin to continue to focus on the place I was at. And then that next year, there'd be gaps and things we'd be missing because I'd spend a two or three month section thinking about what's next versus what I currently have and making that better. And so I think for any, any coaches that are newer to the profession, it's just, it's helping to understand, like be all in where you are and just let those other opportunities come to you right? Like it's, it's, it's just, it's been amazing to me that since I stopped focusing on the next job, I've been offered more next jobs than I ever had previously. And so there's something about that, just that inverse relationship about um, just caring so passionate about where you are. You actually make the place you are better. That makes you more attractive to go get that next job.
1: I love that. That's really good. Yeah. Being, being present is hard. Um, I mean, I'll just say for me, particularly like, yeah, that, I I think I've had to fight that even just being early in my journey of like, all right, spring comes around, like, do I, do I want to go somewhere else? Like is the grass really greener? Like you said, can I stay present here and embrace where I'm at and water that grass? That's really, really good. Next question. What in your opinion, your experience are the qualities of a great coach really open-ended? Yeah. How long do we have
0: (laughs) to talk about this?
1: Um, You
0: know, I was actually, doing some work for you know uh key five coaching is a, is a part of pc basketball and I, I work part of my week for key five and we we want to serve coaches and do um help them become the best version of themselves right on the court off the court And i was actually working on something earlier today and it was along those same lines and the conversation that i've had with coaches and just different opportunities i've had to meet with coaches of different sports and different schools and different genders you know i think that one like main commonality among great coaches is they are culture keepers and I think that concept of being a culture keeper encompasses and covers so many other things that make a great coach and when I think about being a culture keeper like it's really three things to me and I think the head coach is the, the one most responsible but I believe every coach on staff carries responsibility in that and I don't think this is just a school thing either. I've seen youth programs. I mean, even my daughter um, has her, her team sports dance that she does, right? And so she doesn't do any, um, maybe what we would call sports, but she, she dances and the, her dance academy is run this way. And so it's just been really cool to me um, to be able to see this idea of when culture's important to you, right? And everyone's bought into it, like really special things can happen. And so going back to that great coach question, we're a culture keeper we're responsible to like define the culture right like it starts like we get a chance to white paper and i think even every season we can white paper our culture what do we what do we want to look like what do we want to have um and so you get to define it and then you get to instill it or install it Um, you know, I'm not like Mr. Mechanic at all, (laughs) but I'll never forget when, uh, when I was 18 and got my first car and the record player, well not record player, CD player in the car was not very good, right? It's very substandard. And I remember like not being able to afford to pay somebody to replace it, but I bought one and went and put it in my own. And there was just like this feeling when, when it was installed and the music sounded better and the bass actually worked and it wasn't so scratchy. Like I took pride because Hey, I did that. And I think that that's what great coaches do. They take pride in saying, hey, and you know, again, it's not about me, but like they take pride and say, hey, we did this together. We installed it together. Um, and I think the third thing is maintaining it, right? So culture keepers, they define the culture, they instill or install the culture, and then they maintain it. And I think that's what great coaches do. Um, and I think great coaches the other things flow out of that. The the successful seasons where you do win a lot of games. I think the relationships that last for a long time, both with parents and players, come out of things like that. Um, and I just think that if we can be consistent as coaches and knowing the culture that we want to have and, and putting that in place, that all the other things will begin to fall in line with with what it takes for us to really be successful.
1: That's awesome. That's really really good. And I think this kind of flows from what you were just talking about, but if I mean if Matt could decide hey these are the three to five things that every coach at every level of every sport like they need to be educated or trained on these things Mm. what would they be
0: I like it all right we're gonna go go old school I got three C's for you all right three C's I think every coach should have um the first one is character right like we got we have to be in it for the right reasons um I think that I think that most coaches are really believe that most coaches are, but there's a handful of coaches out there that just ends up representing everyone else in the wrong way. And so, but yeah, no one is the character. Like we have to be in it for the right reasons, you know, caring about the athletes, wanting what's best, um, learning, finding ways to learn and get better on our own. Um, but that would kind of actually play into the second I'd say, and that'd be competency. Like we need to help coaches learn the age and stage appropriateness for their sport. Um, I actually think one of the reasons why Canada has really caught up um, on a world scale with basketball is because they have their LTAD, their Lifetime Athletic Development Plan. Right. And they developed this for basketball. And anybody like if you're not they're not familiar, they need to look it up like it. It blew my mind that actually the the R.J. Barrett age Canadian player was the first player that went start to finish through this LTAD and so now more canadians are playing in the nba more canadians other canadian national teams had more success than they have before more players getting drafted and they go back to instilling this ltad so that's the competency point right if we really believe that it's not all about winning at the younger levels well, what are we doing to help develop skill sets Right. Because, again, like I said, it's not all about Pollyanna and just having fun and, and picking flowers. Right. We want to help our kids better. Um, so I think that if, you know, again, the character's is right, uh, if the competency is right. And then just really their their overload of care, like how committed are they to being in it? If we can teach them what commitment is, um, it's more than just showing up at practices and just showing up at games. It's showing up at the hospital when someone's sick. Right. Like it's 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 helping out for us going on in lives. And I think if we can start doing those three things with people, um, with our coaches, both youth and in high school, it's really going to be able to change, you know, what youth sports looks like in our country.
1: That's fantastic. That's so good. And, and again, that's especially the age and stage appropriate is something that's come up so much in these conversations. And like you said, most coaches, I think, really are in it for the right reasons. They, mm-hmm. They're not ill-intentioned. I think they're just really ill-equipped. And yep. they don't know what they don't know. And for some reason in our country, like coaching isn't a licensure, right? Like anybody can go coach. And and for the most part, we don't we don't have something like Canada's developed where we're saying, Hey, mm-hmm. these this is the framework of what you actually need to use, what's best for kids and their development, which I think is what part of what contributes to I mean, some of these really negative experiences for kids in sports. And and so that kind of goes into that next question. It's something you mentioned earlier, right? Like the number one reason kids quit playing sports is because it's not fun anymore. That's what they say. Like I stopped because it wasn't fun. And so my question is, and and working with you, I I've seen you do this. Um, how can coaches at every level just increase fun for athletes?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think I can, I have very limited experience coaching actually within youth sports. So I know there's a lot of coaches that are way more equipped than I am to answer that question. Um, But I'd say like in our high school program, some of the things that we do that are fun is we take days off and do other things right now. I'm not saying, you know, every Wednesday you don't practice, but there are certain times throughout the course of a high school season when, um, you know, like right now for us, this senior class that we have has the most players in our program since their freshman year, There are more freshmen on varsity than any other Right, it's just kind of our class gone through, and so because I have so many from this one grade in my program, I can tell when a really hard test went on, or they've got projects because just the the multiplication of stress and anxiety is so high. And I think one thing that you know really great coaches do, and that I've learned from their coaches, is man take a day off. So there might be a day that we play dodgeball instead of having practice. Right. And as crazy, like the first time I did that, I'll never forget, I had two parent meetings because parents like just did not understand. We're so frustrated by it. Um, And at first I would have been adversarial to it until I actually saw it work in another program. So I stole it and used it my own. And that next game, which we didn't do it the day before game. Right. We saw another day of prep. But like next, we were we played freer and we were looser and we were smiling more. And so I think that like to make the game more fun, sometimes you might do something different. Um, I think another thing that's super helpful that I found, not just the athletes that I coach, but even my own kids who are playing in youth sports, is like telling them how I feel about them or telling them um, what's going on versus just assuming they know. You know, so like if a a player has a great game, right? Maybe a player's been working really hard on on their free throws and they go through a two-week stretch where they're, they're making twice as many free throws in games they used to, right? Their percentage is doubled. And all of a sudden, you know, as a coach, like, well, they know the stats, they know they're getting better, but there's just power in speaking life over someone. And so I've learned the more I understood for myself, the coaches I had or the teachers I had, the more they spoke life over me, the harder they could coach me. And so again, like they held me to a high standard when I wasn't meeting that standard. It wasn't okay. There were natural consequences that came with it, but because they spent the time speaking life over me, it it didn't feel like I was losing my enjoyment or it wasn't fun. It was actually motivating for me um, to do it. So I think that's another big thing that we can do to help make it more fun is just keep speaking life over the kids that we coach um, and help them understand when things are going bad and taking time to ask, you know, what's going on in their lives. Because um, then we can make those connections we're more uh, likely to be able to fight through it with them. Um, as an example of that, I had a play, play for one time in midway through his junior year, that's what he told me, like, coach, this is not fun for me anymore. Um, and he was 6'5", when he walked in the door, he's the kind of guy, the college coaches are going to watch for a little while to figure out if he can play or not. Like he'd look like a college basketball player. Um, and just that middle of the junior year. And again, he's someone who would played year round for 10 years by the time he's 16 or 17 and just struggling with it. And it's just not fun. And so, okay, I said, great. Like over the Christmas break, like don't even come to our optional workouts. Just like take two weeks. Let's see if we can, if you miss it and kind of went through a process and, Luckily, after two weeks, he did feel like he wanted to come back and he stuck it out and figured it out. And then actually had a great senior year and ended up playing college basketball was all said and done. But for him, that was the moment for me where it's like, wow, because as I started to ask him, like, why don't you enjoy basketball? And I realized it was, you know, I had been really hard on him because I knew he wanted to be a great player, um, but I had not actually invested into belief in him at the same time. So I think sometimes as coaches, we, we know that we have to hold a, a high standard and, and hold people accountable. Yes, 100% we have to do that. But we forget that you got to bond sometimes before you battle. You know, not everyone was ready to play for Bobby Knight. Now I was, right? Tell me I can't do it. Yell at me, scream at me. Like I will sign that, that deadline for that, that uh, scholarship and let's go. But not everybody's the same. And so being able to learn how we can best serve and support our athletes, I think will help them keep that joy for the game longer than they would have otherwise.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really great. I, yeah, I mean, the reason that I'm coaching now doing what I'm doing is because I had a coach, multiple coaches that, that spoke into me. It's like so much belief. Yeah. So that's so, so powerful. You kind of started to hit on it and a couple of things you were talking about, but I would just love for you to talk about like really practically, like maybe give a couple examples of, of how you would handle these situations in your practice or game. Um, how can a coach, hold players accountable, hold players to those high standards that we want to set without being demeaning to the players when they're not meeting the standard. Mm
0: -hmm. That's really good. You know, again, the best coaches, I think, are also, like every artist, they steal a lot. And so um, I think Urban Meyer had some kind of influence on this. I don't know where I came. You know, Coach, I think you you should collect all the information available to you and then make it your own. Right. So over the course of time, you know, we all heard about my uh, urban Myers above the line, those kinds of things or different things coaches do. And so what we really believe in as a program is having fewer rules and more standards. Right. So these are the things that we believe in. Even as a team, we talk about it. You know, as a coach, I might have a couple of non-negotiable standards, but also the team speak into every what are our, what are our standards. You know, what do we expect out of each other? And so one thing that we have done in practice is we actually do have a, you know, a simple sign. It's actually just black and white and laminated. It's the first thing you see when you walk out of our locker room before you go on court. And it says, um, what do you choose today? And underneath it, there's just a horizontal line. And that's our reminder, like, are we going to choose to live above the line um, or live below the line? And so what we talk about early in the season is the moment you walk out of that hallway and onto the court, like, that is your your physical demonstration of deciding to live above the line that day. And above the line just means (laughs) I'm not the most important, right? The team is more important. The other things going on are more important, but but I'm here to be a part of the team and make it the best I can be. That's what really basically living above the line means. And so, you know, if we have a player who's maybe not holding the standard or not what we would call living above the line as a coach, the first thing we do is we have a conversation, right? Like it's, this is not a one and done kind of deal. And so pull that player to the side we're going to protect them. Um, hopefully we're going to ask questions versus telling, Hey, Hey, your attitude sucks, right? Like that'd be really tough. Luke. if you're my player and I said, Hey Luke, come over here. Your attitude sucks today. <laughs> you know, like you're not gonna be more likely to tell me what's really going on in your life or why you're acting like that. And so what we want to do is pull size, Hey Luke, man, I can tell like practice, not going well for you. I, it seems to me like you would rather not be here than be here. Can you help me understand why? And when we started to use just that phrase, can you help me understand that allows the athlete to give us the information and so then when we understand and it could be a myriad of reasons and it doesn't matter really what the reason is. It's not okay. Cause we're choosing to be there, but then it's the reminder, Hey, okay, great. Well, if you want to stay in practice, you have to live above that line. We got to make a change. And so again, and every player is different, um, you know, but if there's a player who to maybe a third time, that same practice is just choosing to live below the line. We'll simply excuse them for practice and let them come back the next day and try again. Um, this is not a, a running or a punishment necessarily. This is just, Hey, listen, Today, you're contaminating our environment. You're not contributing to it. And so you just can't be a part of it and you're choosing not to be a part of it. Um, So then then they leave. And I think, again, if it's a player like me in high school, like I drove a lot of coaches crazy when I played in high school because I always thought I knew better than coach. I was probably somebody who would have less of a a rope, so to speak. Right? I had less of leeway before I was being told, hey, I come back and try tomorrow. But I mean, there have been years where I've had, you know, one of my better leaders and someone who's always committed that they're, they're at practice early and then they stay late and they're doing everything coach asked them to do. But then you get in the middle of January and they have a really bad day and maybe she's a terrible day, but, but the first, let's just call it 35 days of practice were great days. You know, and so instead of just sending that player home right away, um, because what does that mean? That means the first time you mess up, you're done. You know, maybe that player has a little more leeway and another chance to stay when someone else might not. And so, um, you know, we talk about practical application. That's really worked well for us Um, is now as a coach, my emotions stay more even keel. And so I think a lot of times when I was a younger coach, I was so up and down with my emotions. My players didn't know and my emotions being like how loud I was yelling right, or how intense I was. And so my players really never knew when to take it seriously and when it was just me being emotional. And so, you know, I don't, I'm probably a little more (laughs) Brad Stevens than I am Bob Huggins, but I think every coach needs to find their Bob Huggins moments, you know, and I think it for every Bob, every Bob Huggins coach needs to find some of their Brad Stevens moments. So then it's easier for the players to understand what's going on versus feeling like they play for a bipolar coach. And so again, going back to, you know, how do we do this in our practices? Like we have to live it out first as coaches. And then when we live it out first as coaches, then we can expect our players to do the same thing. But even just that simple above the line, below the line concept has made a big difference in what our practices look and feel like.
1: Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to Matt for coming onto the podcast. If you'd like to connect with Matt, you can find links in the show details. And if you'd like to get the notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org podnotes to get a free PDF of the notes from this episode. And don't forget to go get your free copy of the official study guide I wrote with Doug Lamov for the Coach's Guide to Teaching. Go to cgtbookclubs.com to download a free copy of the study guide and email me at luke at transformsport.org if you want to be the first to know about future free book clubs covering the book. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a shout out on Twitter. It goes a long way in helping us share with other coaches. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.